Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Tarekam Smaramas Tarekam Hajamaha Tarekam Jagat Sakshi Rupam Namamaha Sadekam Nidhanam Niralam Bamisham Bhavam Bodhipotam Sharanyam Rajamaha Om Shanti 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of this world, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Lovely to be here on this beautiful morning. And today our topic is the unitive life. I think if we could just uh, put into practice completely the song which we heard at the opening, uh, that would be enough. And we don't need to talk anymore. But here we are with a, uh, another 50 minutes or so. So we'll talk a little bit about what does it mean, the unitive life? A life reflecting the Vedantic ideal of unity. A life in which all the disparate parts are unified into, into a whole, a unified life, the life of a mystic, a life leading to the experience of unity, the experience of oneness. Vedanta proclaims unity. It proclaims actually going further than unity, we say non-duality. It's beyond one and two. Sri Ramakrishna he would, would often say this. There is an instance recorded in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna when a devotee was singing a, a devotional song and Sri Ramakrishna entered samadhi. His mind dissolved into the divine. And then as, as the mind gradually took form again and his, he came down to the plane in which he could speak, he said, something happens to me in that state of intoxication. While coming down from that state, I cannot count correctly. Trying to count, I say, one, seven, eight, or some such thing. And Narendra, who was in the room, said, it is because everything is one. Sri Ramakrishna corrected him immediately. He said, no, it is beyond one and two. So reality conceived of in Vedanta is beyond one and two. No separation, beyond even the idea of unity, beyond speech, beyond mind. What would our life look like? if it reflected that ideal, if it became our direct experience? And why is it that we don't feel it? Why is it that we feel so much separation? We feel like we're a separate being, separate from each other. We feel separate from God. Our life even feels sometimes divided against itself. We feel pulled apart by the different forces in our lives. Uh, work life, home life, family life, and spiritual life on the side is not quite in union. 
divided. And yet there, there's, it's one life that we're living, and yet it seems there are all these divisions, these different compartments. And even in the mind, we have all these different compartments, it seems like. We have conflicting urges. On the one hand, we, we want to do only good, and yet sometimes we find we can't help doing something wicked. We, perhaps we have a, a, a bad habit we want to kick, and yet somehow we can't some, quite get rid of it. Tendencies towards good and tendencies towards harm. One mind, yet it seems to be divided against itself. So Vedanta asserts, of course, that this separation, this division is a myth. It's an illusion. We're not seeing correctly. But it is a most persistent illusion, shared by almost everyone. I am a separate individual with my own body, my own mind, my own free will. And the universe is by and large an insentient, separate from me and available for me to exploit for my own pleasure, my own happiness. This is the kind of illusion under which we operate. The universe is separate from me and my purpose in life is to extract some joy out of it. In the present day, this kind of attitude really has been taken to the extreme. Our culture emphasizes the individual over the group and individual freedom over responsibility. Individual freedom over responsibility to others and to the environment. It's become a me culture instead of a we culture. A me culture rather than a we culture. So, no doubt it's a difficult illusion to pierce, to break through. But today I would like to work on that a little bit. How might we start to pierce the illusion of separation? How might we start to live a unitive life? And I'd like to start with the traditional Vedantic practice called Viveka, which is often translated rather poorly as discrimination. Discrimination in the sense of of analyzing and separating. But discrimination in English has so many negative connotations. So we can use the term discernment, deep and focused discernment. And we'll start with that which we know very well, at least which we think we know very well, which is this physical world, matter, the fact of matter. And I'll give a little quote from Swami Vivekananda. He says, supposing we are materialists for argument's sake, materialists meaning matter is all there is, we shall have to come to this, that the whole universe is simply an ocean of matter of which you and I are like little whirlpools. Masses of matter are coming into each whirlpool, taking the whirlpool form and coming out as matter again. The matter that is in my body may have been in yours a few years ago, or in the sun, or may have been the matter in a plant, and so on, in a continuous state of flux. We take this world to be uh, one of distinct, more or less permanent material objects, a lectern, a temple, different bodies, human body, a dog body, a mosquito body, separate objects. Seen from this perspective, the line of demarcation is not so clear. It's not so uh, distinct. Vivekananda sees one ocean of matter and in various whirlpools, which are the various objects in it. 
Uh, I consulted a physicist about this. I wanted to know what do, what do the physicists of today say about it. And he agreed with Vivekananda. He said, there is an exchange of atoms going on continually between everything. And gives the example of petrified trees. How do trees get petrified? Slow exchange of molecules of wood with molecules of stone that allow the tree to maintain its shape. So it's an ocean of matter. We take this material body to be who we are, and yet we find that actually on the material level, it's changing continually. And so is everything else in this universe. Vivekananda goes on. You and I, the sun, the moon, and the stars are but the different names of different spots in the same ocean of matter. It is all one unbroken infinite mass of matter, only differentiated by names and forms. One point is called the sun, another the moon, another the stars, another man, another animal, another plant, and so on. All these names are fictitious. They have no reality because the whole is a continuously changing mass of matter. In Vedanta, when we try to name what is real, we say that is real which is unchanging. If something is continually changing, we don't like to give it the name real, at least absolutely real. It may have a certain temporal reality. That which is real must be so for all time. So then we find all these names and forms not ultimately real. Now, if we peer a little more deeply into matter with the quantum physicists, the particle physicists, uh, we find something remarkable. I asked my consultants again, and I asked, well, is, is matter then undefinable? And he said, not undefinable. On the most subtle level at which scientists can peer, matter itself is beyond undefinable. Rather, it is inconceivable. Inconceivable, since the mutually exclusive concepts of point and wave are shared by the quantum description of matter. So uh, on the most subtle level at which we can look, at which we can peer, we find a paradox. Not two particle and a wave, not two, that is the position of a particle and its momentum, and not one. It's beyond two and one. It's inconceivable. And that really is what Vedanta says about the nature of reality. It is beyond speech and beyond mind. So even on the level of matter, first we begin to see a unity, a single ocean of matter. And when we peer even more closely, we find it is beyond one and two. Let's take the biological perspective now. You shift gears. We think of our body as a single organism, separate from other organisms, a unit. But let's look more closely. Actually, the human body is but a conglomeration of millions of seemingly discrete living entities called cells, which are, for the most part, working together to compose a body. And cells are continually reproducing and dying off. There was an interesting article in the New York Times about this in 2005. I'll just quote a, a couple of lines. Although people may think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. The cells lining the stomach last only five days. The red blood cells last only 120 days or so on average before being dispatched 
to their graveyard in the spleen. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so. So the body is in a continuous state of flux, not only on the atomic level, which we discussed, but also on the biological level, on the cellular level. And even within the cells, there are structures which seem to be independent. For instance, mitochondria apparently were separate structures which got absorbed into cells and now are traveling along in our bodies. And if we look further, there are so many separate organisms also within the human body. Uh, Wikipedia tells us that the human body carries about 100 trillion microorganisms in its intestines. 100 trillion microorganisms. A number 10 times greater than the total number of cells in the human body. So there are more microorganisms in the gut than there are cells in the body, 10 times more. 300 to 1,000 different species of little critters running around <laughs> in the intestines. Different kinds of uh, critters. Uh, uh, some are uh, in symbiosis, mutualistic, commensal, or parasitic parasites. All three exist in the body. Now, electron microscopy reveals that on the skin itself, have you seen those pictures? Horrible monsters. When you <laughs> blow them up, horrible monsters living in the skin. And it makes one's skin crawl to think, well, those things are living in my skin? Hmm? Does this make us feel uncomfortable? Then we're identifying with the body. Then we're taking ourselves to be the body. Swami Vivekananda would tell the story of a monk who had a rotting sore on his arm. And in the sore, there were some maggots eating the rotting flesh. And one of them fell out onto the ground. And the monk reached down and picked the maggot up and put it back into the wound, saying, eat, brother. <laughs> and then Swami Vivekananda would say, does this make you feel uncomfortable? If this makes you feel uncomfortable, you have not realized anything. You have not realized yourself, your true self. So it's something to ask ourselves, does this make us feel profoundly uncomfortable? Then we have strong body consciousness that I am my body. This is a kind of Vedantic analysis. We take our bodies to be ourselves. But it's wrong. The body is more like a society of organisms in continual flux and change, and of course, with a beginning and an end. Moreover, to think that this biological system, which we take to be ourselves, is separate from other biological systems is also incorrect. It's mistaken. Biologists understand that living beings exist in ecosystems, and an ecosystem is defined as a community of living organisms, plants, animals, and microbes, in conjunction with the non-living components of their environment, things like air, water, and mineral soil, interacting as a system. And in fact, the entire Earth is conceived of as such a system called biosphere. And ecology recognizes that biological beings exist in ecosystems of interdependence in which each part or element of the system plays an essential role. Remove one element, and the whole system is affected. And there's a wonderful example of uh, Yellowstone National Park, 
the wolves had been hunted to extinction in Yellowstone National Park. In 1995, wolves were reintroduced with great protests from the sheep farmers uh, in, in Wyoming. But uh, anyhow, it was pushed through and wolves were introduced. And remarkable changes were observed in the ecosystem of Yellowstone. It went so far as to change the course of the rivers. How did that happen? You introduce wolves into an ecosystem. Well, wolves are predators of elk. Now, the elk herds were large and unhealthy. The introduction of wolves into the ecosystem uh, improved the health of the elk herd, first of all, because the wolves would eat the old, the sickly, the lame elk. And uh, the elk had been accustomed to grazing in the meadows, and they grazed everything down. Now, with wolves on the prowl, meadows and valleys were not a good place because they could be easily ambushed. So the elk took to the ravines and hillsides where they had more chance to escape. So what happened in the valleys? More vegetation, more habitat for different kinds of animals. So the biodiversity increased, not only more plant life, but different kinds of animals who took refuge in that plant life. And the banks of the rivers began to be more vegetated. And the rivers became less meandering and more straight because there was less erosion. So how amazing that introducing wolves into an ecosystem changed the course of the rivers. So when we do this kind of analysis, biological and ecological analysis, we find that the body begins to lose its separate individuality and becomes like a whirlpool in the ocean of life. So there's a purpose to doing this, to thinking in this way. It's to change our assumptions about who we really are, to change how we conceive of me. How do we conceive of me? By thinking in this way, uh, we begin to change our conception of me as an individual body unit with fixed boundaries separate from all other units. This is actually an illusion even on the levels of matter, biology, and ecology. And of course, we know from the standpoint of consciousness, we're coming to that. We find that this is also not who we are. So let's turn to an analysis of our minds. Again, Swami Vivekananda, he uses the same image of an ocean. He says, this very same universe from another standpoint is an ocean of thought, where each one of us is a point called a particular mind. He calls it an ocean of thought, one infinite mass, in which your mind and my mind are like whirlpools. Are you not seeing the effect now, how my thoughts are entering into yours and yours into mine? So he presents this idea of a universal mind in which all our individual minds are like little points. Our individual microcosmic mind is a whirlpool in the universal macrocosmic mind. And he says, each mind is connected with every other mind. And each mind, wherever it is located, is in actual communication with the whole world. The mind is universal. Your mind, my mind, all these little minds are fragments of that universal mind, little waves in the ocean. So we see how here we are having a talk and we see how thoughts are passing from mind to mind on the level of speech. But Swami Vivekananda takes it further. He presents telepathy and thought transference as evidence also for this interconnection. And he himself could read others' minds. 
and he did so on occasion with permission from his disciples. The example of Sister Christine and Mary Funky, who searched him out in Thousand Island Park. And before accepting them as his disciples, he asked them if they would mind if he would read their minds. And they agreed. And he told them many things that he couldn't possibly have known about them because he had just met them. And he could understand how to teach them and guide them. Sri Ramakrishna also would say that he could look at the contents of a person's mind simply by looking at them, as if looking in a glass case and seeing the objects in the glass case. So we may pride ourselves on our minds and feel that, well, my mind at least is mine. It is separate from other minds. If I'm not the body, well, the mind, at least that is who I am. Vedanta says, wrong. You are not your mind. Your mind is not separate from other minds. And Look at your mind. Have a look at it. It is constantly changing. There's a constant flow of thoughts going on. How many are our own thoughts? How many thoughts are our own thoughts? And who is thinking? We think that we think our thoughts, but most often our thoughts think us. Our thoughts think us. Mostly it's an unconscious flow of thoughts going from here and there and everywhere. And very often we cannot even control it. We cannot control what we think. We keep thinking about something that we don't want to think about it, that we don't want to think about. How can we be our minds then? How can that be who we are? So if I am not my body, which is a conglomeration of living parts and is itself a part of a living ecosystem, and if I am also not my mind, which is like a whirlpool of thought in the universal mind, then who am I? That's the big question. Who am I? That's the big question that all seekers after truth must ask themselves. The ultimate question asked in Vedanta, the Vedantic seeker, and the answer comes in stages. One develops the conviction, first of all, that one is not the body, and then that one is not the mind, and that one is spirit, a soul, Atman, consciousness. I am consciousness. I am. At least that much I can say I am. I am a soul divine, immortal, pure, objectless consciousness. Now the Vedantist, the Advaita Vedantist at least, the non-dual Vedantist will go further. There is an ocean of consciousness. I am a drop in that ocean of consciousness. I am a part of God. I and all souls are parts of the infinite divine reality. And some will go even further and say, all separation melts away in the infinite ocean of reality. There is only I am. Satchit Ananda, existence absolute, consciousness absolute, bliss absolute, one only without a second, and that thou art. That is who I am. That is who we are. Swami Vivekananda takes us through these stages. I'll read a little quote. He says, it is not that there is a soul in man, although I had to take that for granted in order to explain it at first, but that there is only one existence and that one, the Atman, the Self, capital S. And when this is perceived through the senses, through sense imageries, it is called the body. When it is perceived through thought, it is called the mind. When it is perceived in its own nature, it is the Atman, the one only existence. So it is not that there are three things in one, 
the body and the mind and the self, although that was a convenient way of putting it in the course of explanation, but that all is Atman. So there's no question of any separation. This is a unity, a unity. But the question of individuality arises, and many of Swami Vivekananda students and many of us may also ask, well, what about me? What about my individuality? And uh, one of Swami Vivekananda's students, Frank Rodahamel, from Northern California, who was his student in 1900, he recalled, in the questions which usually followed a talk on Advaita Vedanta, there was almost sure to be a question, but Swami, what will become of one's individuality when one realizes one's oneness with God? He would laugh at this question and playfully ridicule it. He would say, you people in this country are so afraid of losing your individualities, <laughs> drawling out the word in laughing mockery. Why? You are not individuals yet. When you know God, you will be. When you realize your whole nature, you will attain your true individualities not before. In knowing God, you cannot lose anything worth having. So we do feel a little uncomfortable when we first study this. We do feel, if all is one, if the drop merges in the ocean, where is the drop? What becomes of the drop? I am that drop. Vedanta says, no, you are not the drop. You are the ocean. That is our individuality. So where do we locate our me? Where do we locate our me? in our precious bodies and minds and thoughts and memories and achievements and likes and dislikes, in the temporary flux. We try to carve out a little kingdom out of the impermanent flux and call that me. The thrilling verses in the Isha Upanishads, one of the shortest Upanishads, the Isha Upanishad, the illumined soul finds his, her, me everywhere. Yastu sarvani bhutam yatmanye vanupashyati sarva bhuteshu chatmananta tona vijugupsati yasmin sarvani bhutam yatmai vabhudvijanataha tatra komoha kashoka ekatva manupashyataha The illumined soul beholds all beings in the self, the Atman, and the self in all beings. For that reason, that person does not hate anyone. To the seer, all things have verily become the self. What delusion, what sorrow can there be for the person who beholds that oneness? What sorrow, what delusion can there be? What a thrilling realization. I find my me everywhere. This is the unitive life of the mystic seeing the one self in all beings, seeing myself in everything and everything in myself. How can we then hate when we find ourselves in all? How can we hate anyone? How can we fear anyone or anything when we find ourselves in all? Such a person has no moha, no delusion, no shoka, no sorrow, immersed in bliss, beholding that oneness, that ekatvam, knowing that non-dual reality to be myself. What bliss, what joy, what fearlessness. That's all very well and good, you will say, but uh, what about us? Is that, is that practical? 
Swami Vivekananda would always say, absolutely. But we have to remember what we mean by practical. Practical doesn't mean dragging down an ideal, watering it down and making it uh, palatable. It means lifting ourselves up, taking the highest ideal and putting it into practice. We are called to practice. We remind ourselves when we hate someone, when we feel annoyed by someone, we're not seeing properly. If I feel afraid, I'm not seeing properly. When I despair, I'm not seeing properly. In the beginning, we pretend. We may have to pretend. Gradually, we make these qualities our own. Gradually, we realize. Now, I know many of us will say, that's all right for the great saints, the great mystics. But we are not, we are not saints. We are struggling in this world to earn our daily dollar and somehow keep from losing our heads. I'd like to... Look at, let's look at some examples. What does the unitive life actually look like? I'd like to turn to an observation from Sister Deva Mata, who was an American nun, a Vedanta nun, who lived in India for some time and uh, had the chance to spend a lot of time with Holy Mother, Sri Sarada Devi, Sri Ramakrishna's wife and helpmate. Um, she describes the room in Calcutta, where Holy Mother lived. It was an upper room in her house, which is a large room, and uh, they used to spend the days in that room. She, she makes this observation. Across the front of the second story, where the Holy Mother spent her days, there ran one large room. This was the meeting place of the household. At one end was the shrine. But there was no need of a dividing line, because... There was none in the lives of those who sat in that upper chamber. The Lord was their accustomed companion, and it was natural to them to pass all the hours of day and night at his feet. This short passage really struck me when I first read it, and it still strikes me. As you can see, we have a dividing line here. We have our shrine, and we have gates, and it's a kind of a dividing line right here. That's the shrine, and this is the temple. And then we have another dividing line outside the temple, and this is the inside of the temple, and that's the outside of the temple. And that's good. That's for us. It's necessary, and it's a kind of a symbol of how we have to enter into the inner shrine to find the Lord. But in Holy Mother's case, there was no dividing line that here is the shrine, and here is the rest of our room and the rest of our life because there was no dividing line in the life though life was a unitive life where every moment every moment is spent at the feet of the lord in god consciousness conscious of the presence of god i don't mean of course that we should all come and start sleeping here in the temple uh, but we can learn from the mother the secret of the unitive life the whole life is unified in her case by being utterly centered in God. And the bridge, that, that divide, that separation between sacred and secular is bridged by seeing all as sacred. The separation between self and other is bridged by seeing no one is a stranger. Hers was an undivided life, centered, fully centered on Sri Ramakrishna. Everything rotated around him. And we sense in Mother's life a wonderful simplicity, a perfect ease resulting from this total dedication of life. I'd like to introduce here uh, an important term in Vedanta, Shraddha. 
a term called shraddha, which is ordinarily translated as faith. But it's a, it's a very insufficient translation. Shraddha is an affirmative orientation of our whole personality towards the divine, towards Vedantic truth, an affirmative orientation of our whole personality. It's not mere belief. It's not mere lip service to a creed. It embodies a worldview that lies deep in our personality, a worldview. The German term is Weltanschauung, uh, which is a big word, but it has a purpose because it goes even further than worldview. So it suggests that not only all our conscious, but even our subconscious and unconscious drives and motivations are brought into play here. Our philosophical, moral, political, and religious spiritual conclusions, our subconscious and unconscious drives and desires that color our perceptions and actions, all are brought into this worldview, how we look on the world, how we look on our life. Uh, and in the case of spiritual seekers, entirely focused to the divine. The more we can bring all our faculties into our worldview, into this shraddha, the more that shraddha itself will manifest in a unitive life. And we need, as spiritual seekers, to consciously cultivate this, consciously cultivate a worldview, this shraddha, this affirmative orientation of our whole personality. Why? Because if we don't do it consciously, we will do it unconsciously. And when we do it unconsciously, it becomes formed by the currents of the culture in which we live which takes matter to be ultimately real and the purpose of life to be enjoyment. And then we will suffer. So we cultivate it consciously and drive it deep into the subconscious. Uh, Vivekananda says, from the standpoint of the path of knowledge, constantly tell yourself, I am not the body, I am not the mind, I am not thought, I am not even consciousness, I am the Atman. We must put in our whole soul and be intense. Day and night, tell yourself, I am he. I am he. From the devotional standpoint, we would say, day and night, tell yourself, I am thine. I am thine. One of the Holy Mother's disciples, Swami Saradeshananda, was widely regarded as an illumined soul himself. He was known as Gopesh Maharaj. And he lived uh, into the uh, 70s, I think, or possibly into the 80s of 1980s. And so many, there are many people still living who, have met, who had met him. And he wrote some reminiscences of his time spent with Holy Mother. And he describes in a wonderful way how the mother's disciples developed this kind of shraddha, this kind of worldview. And I, it's, it's worth reading out. As regards faith in God and the practice of his worship, that was one's very life and was as spontaneous as breathing. The faith that gradually became firm in their hearts was this. There is one all-pervading, all-compassionate Lord who is the power behind all the functions of the world like creation, preservation, and dissolution. He is present everywhere inside and outside. The world is the Lord's. He created it for his own play, 
We are mere pawns in his game. Wherever he keeps us, and in whatever way he does so, we have to abide by it contentedly. We suffer as a result of our own actions. It is unfair to blame anybody else for it. We have to surrender ourselves completely to the Lord with faith and devotion, serve others to the best of our capacity, and never be a source of sorrow to anybody. Teachings like these, the mother used to impart to her children in a manner that they absorbed them deep in their hearts. Unknowingly, without any formal instruction. So this is the worldview, the Weltanschauung, which the mother cultivated in the hearts of her children. We can see how it's all-encompassing. It covers the whole picture, how I fit into this world. Who is God? What is God? What is my relationship to God? What is my relationship to other people? It covers the whole picture. Now, each one of us also will have our own outlook unique to us. This outlook is unique to, well, we can say the disciples of Holy Mother, but specifically Swami Saradeshananda. This was the, the way he came to understand his place in the world. And we also need to consciously develop our own understanding. How do we fit in this world? What is our role? How do we look on God? And there are different approaches. We, we will find our own approach. Vedanta has the approach for everyone. I'll read out from Swami Vivekananda, one of my favorite. He used to give sometimes these pithy, short, and yet concise, clear, direct definitions of what is religion. What is religion in essence when you boil it down to its very core and essence? He says, he writes to his dear American sister, Mary Hale, the eternal, the infinite, the omnipresent, the omniscient is a principle, not a person. You and I and everyone are but embodiments of this principle. And the more of this infinite principle is embodied in a person, the greater is he or she. And all in the end will be the perfect embodiment of that. And thus all will be one as they are now essentially. This is all there is of religion. And the practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. So this is another, I'm offering another approach to the unitive life. We had the approach of Swami Saradeshananda, which is a devotional approach. We have this approach of wisdom, recognizing that there is one infinite principle manifesting as everything we see and everyone we meet. And the more we manifest that principle, the more we become one, the more we live unitive life. And how do we practice it? How do we practice it? Through this feeling of oneness. We practice it exactly through the feeling of oneness. And what is that feeling of oneness? It is love and nothing else but love. Swami Vivekananda emphasized love so much. Not that he emphasized love for God or some kind of weepy something, but this strength of seeing oneness, feeling oneness. He would say, it is unswerving love and perfect unselfishness that conquer everything. In his letter to J.J. Uh, Goodwin, his beloved disciple and stenographer, we Vedantists in every difficulty ought to ask the subjective question, he says. We ought to ask ourselves, why do I see that? In every difficulty, ask ourselves, why do I see that? 
Why can I not conquer this with love? Why can I not conquer this with love? Love is the greatest power in the universe, says Swami Vivekananda. The unitive life, what else can it be but a life of love? Love is that tendency towards oneness. So the unitive life is the life of love. It's a life of recognizing oneness. It's a life of realizing oneness. In our quest to realize this, I will make a couple of suggestions. One is the importance of meditation. How do we drive these ideas deep into our hearts and minds? We need to take a little time every day and quiet the mind, drive these ideas deep within. Regular disciplined practice. And to take time, regular, repeated, deep affirming of the truth. Of, the, of that particular expression of truth which is most meaningful to us, whether it be devotional or knowledge. In meditation, rightly practiced, we do this. In meditation, we replace our self-image of body and mind and place the divine in its place. We uh, replace our separate little self with the divine. And finding the divine within us, we can so easily see it also without. Connected with all beings. It's imagination at first, no doubt. But imagination ripens into realization. And it may seem so difficult when we have so many different uh, things going on and so many different desires. What is it that can take all these different strands of our life and tie it into one thread? It has to be a longing, a longing for God, a longing for spiritual realization. We recognize, and we've talked about this before, that all desire is a desire to fill that hole that we feel deep within. And what is that hole? It's simply our failure to recognize unity, our failure to recognize divinity shining within and without. All seeking that we do in this world is a, a, an attempt to fill that hole, to reach the divine, but it's mostly unconscious seeking. When we make it conscious seeking, when we become seekers of God, when we long for God, when we pine for God, when we become like that disciple in Sri Ramakrishna's story who asked, well, how should we long for God? And the teacher said, come with me, and took him to the riverbank and said, let's have a bath. And in the Indian style, of course, having a bath in the river means you get in the river and you duck under the water. And as the disciple went under, the guru pushed his head down and held it there. And the disciple started to struggle and started to want, wanted to come up. And the guru was pushing his head down. And finally, he's struggling and struggling. And he lets him up. How did you feel? I was dying for a breath of air. I was dying for a breath of air. Ah, when we feel that way for God, then we realize. When we have that kind of longing, that longing pulls all the energies of our life into one focus, and we begin to lead the unitive life. Close with a, a beautiful a couple of verses from the Bhagavad Gita. Sri Krishna is instructing his beloved disciple Arjuna, and he's been teaching him about meditation. And now he gives these powerful verses in the sixth chapter. Sarvabhutasthamatmanam, sarvabhutanichatmani, 
ईक्षते योगयुक्तात्मादर्शन यो मश्यति मयि पश्यति तस्याहं न प्रणश्यामि प्रणश्यति With the heart concentrated by yoga, with the eye of evenness for all things, he beholds the self in all beings and all beings in the self. He who sees me in all things and sees all things in me, he never becomes separated from me, nor do I become separated from him. So this is the assurance of Sri Krishna. When we can see the divine in all things and all things in the divine, there is no separation and we begin to lead truly the unitive life. May we go forward from where we stand and stop not till the goal is reached. Thank you. I will close with a chant. Om Brahma Varunendra Rudra Marutaha Stunvanti Divyaistavai Vedai Sangapadakramopanishadai Gayanti Amsamagaha Dhyana Vastita Tadgatina Manasa Pashyanti Yam Yogino Yasyantam Naviduh Surasuragana Devayatasmai Namaha Om Shanti 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 our salutations to him who is the truth of life and existence and whom the sages call by various names. Our salutations to him whose glory is sung in the sacred hymns of the various scriptures of the world, but whose limitless and infinite grandeur no mortal mind can comprehend. Our salutations to him on whom the devotees meditate in the shrine of their heart and realize his ineffable presence in their deepest contemplations. May he illumine our understanding and prompt our minds to the path of truth and righteousness. May he reveal himself unto our souls and dispel the gloom of delusion, fear, doubt, and darkness. Om, peace, peace. Peace, peace be unto us and to unto all living beings. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.